go after the praise, the intimacy of your heavenly Father. Their giving in their prayers and their fasting were unattached from a life devoted to God. It's about motives. It's not about place. It's about what's going on inside of us. But the reward for authentic prayers is God himself. It is uh, really awesome to have you all here. We have some alums in the house from years past, and so it's always good to welcome them back. Um, they're here because in a few weeks this building is going to be blown up, and they wanted to see it one last time before that happens. If you weren't here a couple of weeks ago, I wanted to just really briefly keep us up to date about what's happening with the whole transition out of this building and in the new building that's going to be built right here in uh, about August 2021 will be the date for that. Um, can you go ahead and throw up? This is where, don't throw up, no, <laughs> throw up the picture. I need to finish my sentence because that would be gross. But uh, this is where we're going. In the meantime, this is um, right across from the Union Hotel. This is 320 North. The next slide has a little map in case you're interested in how to get from here to there. Go to the Union and turn left. Uh, God has provided this space for us um, starting August, not August, April the 12th, which is uh, Easter Sunday, will be our first Sunday in that space. And so we are excited to be able to have a place to be while this building is being dismantled and the new building is being built. Here's a kind of a, a lineup schedule of what we're going to be doing. April 3rd and 4th are moving days. And so if you can help out in any way, getting us ready to pack everything up and move. And then April 5th will be our last Sunday in this space and on that Sunday, we're going to just celebrate, really, what God has <clears throat> done in this building for the last 50 years and um, pray for the next 50, uh, should the Lord tarry, right? And then Easter service and groundbreaking ceremony and then completion of the new house, August 2021. It's exciting. So lots going on. Uh, we'll need your help getting the word out hanging posters, all that kind of stuff. And so uh, that, that March 8th in-house dinner, we just invite you to come. That's a, that's a time to ask some questions and really cast some more vision for where we're going. So we're excited. Um, Bryson, come on up. So last night we had this annual thank you dinner at the Union, and we had about, yeah, that's great. We had about 300 people. Uh, supporters and alums that gathered and some present students and um, get to say thank you for all of these incredible people that give sacrificially so that we can do this. And that's been going on for a long, long time. So lots of conversation. It's, a, it's kind of a mini reunion. Bryson Thomas, actually, uh, we had him speak last night. Uh, it's Major Bryson Thomas. That's right. Bryson is a pilot in the Air Force, and he is uh, 
He graduated 11-ish years ago. Yeah. He's married to Lexi. They have two incredible little kids named Nora and William. And um, wanted him up here just for a couple of things. One, I just want to uh, have him talk briefly um, before we get into the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and then I wanted any of you that are in ROTC, that are thinking military with, with your life, um, I want you to hang out with Bryson just for 15 or 20 minutes afterwards. I think he would have a ton of insight for you as you embark on this journey. And he, uh, he's a guy that reflects Jesus really well everywhere he goes. And so in the, in the gray room, right off the, the sanctuary here, um, just immediately after service, we're going to have Bryson hang out there. Is there anybody in ROTC? Can I just see your hands? Yeah, good. Would you be willing to do that? Just hang out for a few more minutes? Okay, good. So you won't be in there by yourself? That's good. Um, or I could be by myself. That's okay. Okay. Uh, man, there's a lot we could talk about. But I really want to preach today, so I'm just going to cut you short. Can you... Can you just give a glimpse of what God's been doing recently in your life? Because we talk about that this discipleship thing is a lifelong journey with Christ. It's a long obedience in the same direction, right? So uh, looking back in um, presently then, where you are, you and Lexi, what's, what's God been teaching you in real time? Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's a change from what? We talked about yesterday, but I'll roll with it. Uh, I appreciate that. Keeping Thanks. you up on Yeah, that's toes. good. I'm keeping on my toes. You're a pilot. It's Come what on. we do. Um, so right now, I think the biggest thing that we are learning right now is, is um, how to live faithfully uh, when the margins of life are slim. Uh, right now, life is busy, and I would say that a lot of you in the room feel that way too. Life is busy. There's a lot of things going on. you got things that are pulling for your time and for your allegiance. Uh, and that's the same for me as well. And so when, when the unexpected stuff comes up in life, um, the biggest thing that we've been learning is to, to trust the priorities that God teaches you in, your word, in his word um, and to faithfully apply them in the chaos of the moment. Um, it's very easy just to uh, put on survival mode and just live one, one day at a time. Uh, but that's not the picture we get uh, from Scripture. Uh, the picture we get from Scripture is these are the things that are, are important to me and then should be important to you. Um, and and those, those evidently and consequently uh, play out in, in then how you spend your time, your talents, and your treasures, um, even as you talk about the Sermon on the Mount this morning. Um, an authentic faith lived out in priorities when life gets busy and then the unexpected happens means that you say no to things uh, and that you cut things out that uh, aren't the, the highest priority. So the first thing to go is not uh, your morning quiet time uh, with the Father. Uh, the first thing to go is the extra things at the end of the day that you don't need to spend your time doing. And that's kind of what's been uh, weighing on my heart recently in the last month or so uh, on just uh, we got some sickness rolling through my family. We've got uh, some, some travel going on back and forth. And, and in the midst of all that, I, I, we need to make sure, and I need to make sure, that when I say I love Jesus, 
the first thing that flows out into that is devotion and allegiance to him and that I want to obey him by spending time with him. I want to obey him by coming before him in repentance each and every day. So that's kind of what's been going on, uh, I guess, recently. That's awesome. If you could go back to your 18 to 22-year-old self, anything that you would want to say to that, that Bryson who lived in Joshua House and was chomping at the bit to take on the world, what would you say to him? Yeah, um, so lots of things, <laughs> uh, but to get your sermon on, on, on point here, um, John 14, 21 says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will manifest myself to him. Uh, and that's something I wish I had internalized a little bit earlier. Uh, we just spent a, a wonderful time worshiping uh, and, and lifting high our hands, right? And, and our, our hearts abandoned, as the, as the chorus said. Um, and that is the proper response to uh, a life that's been wrecked by the love of Jesus. It absolutely is. But it doesn't end there. Uh, and that's what I would say back to, to uh, you know, 21, 22-year-old Bryson is uh, absolutely respond in awe and worship of the God who uh, gave your himself for you. And then after that, the proper response the Bible teaches us is a life of allegiance to him and a life of obedience to what Jesus says, which means we don't get to edit the Bible and not hear half of what Jesus said, right? It means that the, the hard things, even John 14, 21, which is, if, if you claim to love me, you will obey me. In other words, the Bible says, from a love that I poured out to you, in response, you love me. That's how we, that's what First John says, right? Uh, we know because he loved us first. We know how to love. And then the response to that is obedience, allegiance and obedience. It's not this ob obligatory obedience that we just kind of put on every single day trying to make it happen. It's a love that we have towards him because of what he's done for us. And the only natural response is to obey him completely and wholly. So whatever that means to you, uh, and what it meant to me as far as like what you're hearing from, from him in, in, your, in the word when you study it or when you're listening to sermons is you can't cast off what the Holy Spirit is saying to you. Uh, and we can't just say, I love Jesus, and then walk out of here and go, I'm not, it's not going to affect my life. It's not going to change what I truly believe. So that's, that's kind of what I would I'd probably say in a nutshell, plus many more things. I should just shut up and just let you go. <laughs> but I'm not going to. <laughs> Thanks, man. Bryce and Thomas, ladies and gentlemen. There's this ongoing thread throughout the Gospels that Jesus is calling out the Jewish leaders for their hypocrisy. Matthew 15 says this. Um, the, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and says, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. And Jesus is like, are you serious? Uh, he says, the, this is, you hypocrites, verse 7, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. And Jesus called the crowd and said, Listen and understand what goes into a man's mouth does not make him unclean. But what comes out of his mouth, that's what makes him unclean. And then I love this. This is verse 12. 
It says, then the disciples came to him and asked, uh, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? <laughs> Jesus said, yeah. <laughs> Jesus called the Pharisees, he called the religious leaders all sorts of names that they would not put on their business cards. You know, it's like brood of vipers, the blind leading the blind, whitewashed tombs. And he just keeps going and going and going. Matthew 6 is where we are this morning. And it starts with this. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Don't do theatrical righteousness. The word for hypocrite in the first century, it meant actor. People listening to Jesus immediately would have gone to these Roman plays where, where the actors and the actresses, well, it's just all actors at that point, the actors would be acting their part, these thespians. Occasionally these days, an actor will stay in character, right? They will uh, really go to extremes to get into the, the role and the character, like Joaquin Phoenix uh, in The Joker lost a ton of weight. Or Jason Momoa for the Super Bowl commercial, you know, lost all of his muscle, you know. But eventually the play ends its run, the movie is wrapped, and then the actor returns to his or her normal self. Because their lines were unattached from the person. They were simply acting. And that's precisely what Jesus accuses the religious leaders of doing. Their lines, their techniques and forms for following God had little to do with their heart, had little to do with what was going on inside of them. Their giving and their prayers and their fasting were unattached from a life devoted to God. And this is a huge can of worms that Jesus is opening with a vengeance. He is calling us to deal radically with hypocrisy because it is a subtle cancer that will eat us alive. It's not just about what we do. It's about how we do it. The last two weeks, Dave and Ralph have been talking about the six commands. You've heard it said, but I say. Today would be the three devotions. Give, pray, and fast. Not to be confused with eat, pray, and love. <laughs> Matthew 6, 2 says this. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by others. Truly I say to you, I tell you, they have received the reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Giving is the social devotion of helping people. It includes bringing an offering, but it also includes serving one another, helping out one another. Good deeds. So that's good, right? Sure, if the motivation is authentic if the heart is devoted to God, but the hypocrites would make it all about them, announcing their giving with a photo op and a music backdrop so that everyone would know this is a super spiritual person. Impressive people impress 
they get rewarded. And Jesus says that the praise of men are the hypocrite's reward. He is saying that giving and serving can actually be consumeristic, that the intended goal is immediate gratification or self-glorification. Jesus says, when you give, you, my people, when you give to the needy, be unselfconscious and unself-impressed. Not only should there not be external trumpets, but there should also not be an internal backdrop of music with a voice saying, you are pretty good, dude, or do that. Frederick Bruner writes, Jesus wants to liberate us from having to be impressive to anyone, including ourselves. We talk about confessing secret sin, breaking the chains of the things that are keeping us from God, things that no one knows about except God himself, of course, because he knows completely what is in our hearts and minds. The Father sees what is done in secret. Our sin, yes, but also he sees in secret our desire to give and to serve, to love others sacrificially without the fanfare and without the backdrop of the trumpets. He is impressed when our hearts are in tune with his heart of generosity. We are uncomfortable with the rhetoric of reward. But the Father really does see our hearts and wants to bless. The picture of reward isn't this detached, I'm going to do this so I get something. It is the reciprocity of a father and son, of a father and daughter. I just want to please my dad because I love him. John 5, why do you seek glory from one another and not your heavenly father? Ah, oh, that hit me like a ton of bricks. Because we like to seek glory from people, right? We like to be told that we're all that. We like to, to measure up. We like to get some positive feedback. We like to fish for compliments. And Jesus said, don't go after that. Go after the praise, the intimacy of your heavenly father who is just stinking proud of you just because you are his. Hebrews 11, and without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists And he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Really quick case study. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9 is uh, this really awesome picture of giving. Um, Macedonian church was giving to the Jerusalem church. Remember last semester we talked about the church of Acts just like, Come on, anybody, let's give you what you need. They gave so much that they actually became poor in their giving. And the church in Macedonia followed suit. He says, 
I want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches out of the most severe trial. This is 2 Corinthians 8. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded for us, with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. And then he says, verse 7, just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in the grace of giving. And he goes on to say that that grace of giving is simply a response to the grace that we've received through Christ. What an awesome picture of a motivated heart of giving. Psalm 50, does God need our money? No. In fact, Psalm 50 says, God is weary of empty gifts. God wants our hearts. When he has our hearts, then we'll start to think about what God thinks about. Our heart starts to beat with his heartbeat. And following Jesus means that we become good at giving away our life because that's exactly what he did. Verse 5, back to Matthew 6. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. And then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. First of all, Jesus assumes that we're praying. When you pray, Jesus is not forbidding public prayer. There is something amazing about public prayer. The other night, sorry, my allergies, uh, Wednesday night, we had the National Collegiate Day of Prayer, and there were, this room was packed with people from across different ministries and different churches coming together to worship and just to, to go for it in prayer. That was powerful. Jesus isn't forbidding public prayer, if, if he did, then the church in Acts definitely didn't get that memo because they were praying all the time together. Here's what he's saying. Jesus is talking about praying words that are disconnected from the heart. Matthew 12, from the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. It's about motives. It's not about place. It's about what's going on inside of us. The hypocrites prayed to be seen by men, not by God. And so Jesus says, okay, well, that, they've received their reward in full. But Jesus says, when you pray, go into literally your supply closet, because that's the only place you can lock it. Close the door, pray to your Father who is unseen but very present. And then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. He is the God who sees. Genesis 16, story of Hagar, Ishmael. Hagar was cast off by Abraham. 
She's sitting all by herself, and an angel comes to minister to her. Says, you're going to have a kid. She names that kid Ishmael, which means the God who sees. The God who is everywhere but is here. Jesus, Mark 1.35, very early in the morning while it was still dark, he got up, he left the house, he went off to a solitary place, and he prayed. The reward for phony prayers is the praise of people. It's a name on the brick. But the reward for authentic prayers is God himself. It is his peace. It is his joy. It is his contentment. It is his yearning. It's it's his holy dissatisfaction. So don't pray like hypocrites who work hard to get noticed. And verse 7, when you pray, don't keep babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Don't be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. There's a misconception that there has to be a lot of words. We have to be verbose in our prayers. Ecclesiastes 5 says, let your words be few. Isaiah 65, before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. Augustine said, remove from prayer much speaking, not much praying. And then you can say, yeah, what about verses like um, Matthew 7, further in the Sermon on the Mount. Keep asking, keep knocking, keep seeking. Yes, but the foundation of that is relationship, not the art of being verbose. 1 Thessalonians 5, pray continually without ceasing. But that can only happen when we are freed from the idea that we don't have to jump through hoops to get God's attention. It's more of a child's conversation with his or her daddy. God is not a reluctant listener. One writer said, the paradox of prayer is that only when it is relieved from the necessity of much will people experience the freedom for much. When disciples know that they don't have to pry much, they will surprisingly desire to pray more. In verse 8 says, the reason for not having to pry much is that God already knows. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. And then we say, well, if he already knows, then why do we even pray? And that's an awesome question. And here's the answer. First of all, of course he knows because he's God and God knows everything, right? Including what you're trying to express in prayer. But think about it again in terms of relationship. Who are you most likely to share the deepest parts of your life with It is the person who knows you best, right? Who sometimes know what we need better than we do, that we feel most free to talk to. The fact that he knows doesn't inhibit our prayer. In fact, it encourages our prayer. Hebrews 4, Jesus knows. So let's approach the throne of grace with confidence. We are free to pray more relationally. So that is how not to pray. 
Next week, we'll talk about how to pray when we look at the Lord's Prayer. And then please come on spring break because we're going to spend a whole week in this, and it's going to be awesome. Shameless plug. Blackaby says, the single greatest reason to pray is to take the focus away from us and turn it to God. It is a relationship, not an activity. It's not about what is on our heart, but what is on God's. Verse 16, give, pray, and fast. When you fast, don't look somber like the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show men they are fasting. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put on oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to men that, they, that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. In Matthew 9, John's disciples came to Jesus and they said, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast? And there's a whole conversation about, well, they're with me, right? The bridegroom. They're with me. But there's another part of that that, that caught me. How come your disciples don't fast? How would they know that Jesus' disciples didn't fast? Because what had been modeled was a kind of fasting that was really, really obvious. It was the kind of fasting where the religious leaders would disfigure their faces and look all disheveled in order so that people would know that this is a spiritual person. This is a faster. It was obvious. The Pharisees wanted to be noticed for being devout. So they thought they should look miserable. So Jesus is saying, don't look miserable. Take a shower. My goodness. <laughs> Fasting in secret. Dallas Willard says, we will not be miserable, but we will certainly be different. It is fasting with our periphery filled with Jesus, not with our periphery filled with people watching. Those who don't fast with God alone in the periphery will be miserable fasting, and you'll be miserable praying, and you'll be miserable giving, and you'll just be miserable. God is our audience. God hates hypocrisy, but he loves reality. And that is why it is only when we are aware of his presence in giving, in praying, in fasting, that that will be real. Fasting, like prayer, changes us, not God. It changes us. It breaks down the barriers that prevent us from hearing and experiencing God. Richard Foster said, it's not as much abstaining from food as it is feasting on God. Let me just say this. The essence of fasting is first and foremost abstaining from food for the purpose of humbling ourselves before God and seeking his will, his heart. There is an intricate dance, I think, with, with fasting and even with praying. Acts 13, there was a collective fast by the church in Antioch. Remember Antioch from last semester? It's where the church was first called church, right? The sending base, sending base for the missional movement that was the church. 
they were ministering to the Lord. They were worshiping and they were fasting. And out of that intentional time with God, the Holy Spirit made really clear what direction they should go. And then after they prayed and fasted again, they acted on what the Holy Spirit had said. And that became the pattern all the way through the book of Acts. Fasting and praying and fasting again and praying. All through scripture, there's this intricate dance between God's sovereignty, his providence, his predetermined purposes, and the steps of human free will. God is God. His ways are not our ways. He has no limitations. He has no boundaries. There is no dictating to him how things should go. And yet, there are occasions when he stirs the ingredients of the people's faith in prayer and fasting that mixes with his purposes. It's mysterious, it's not formulaic, it's not trying to strong arm God. It is yielding in obedience to him. So let me ask you, what decisions are on the horizon for you? What's going on in your life? How much anxiety, how much apprehension how, how might prayer and worship and fasting not be this easy pill to take so that everything is smooth sailing, but how might those spiritual activities actually align us with the heartbeat of God, with his will, with his delight, with his ways? Also this, what are the things that threaten to displace Jesus being the centerpiece of your life? Maybe that is a cue of what to fast from as well. Fasting is inhaling. It's contemplative. It's a form of mourning. It is godly sorrow. It's a form of humility. It is a form of self-control. It is worship. It is spiritual battle. It intensifies prayer. It reminds us of our need for God's daily bread. And it is exhaling. It is a way to prioritize life around Jesus. It's a way to determine what is essential and what is (laughs) non-essential. the, the question is, you know, you're, you, you're eating with some friends, and the question is, are you going to eat that, you know, right? Fasting kind of turns that question on its head. It says, it says, instead of are you going to eat that, do I really need that? Fasting is a way to symbolically share in the world's hunger. Most of us throw away enough food to feed a family in Bangladesh for a week, Right? The weekly food expenditure, I was reading an article on this, the weekly food expenditure, expenditure average in the U.S. is around 300 and some dollars, $340. That's more than what we spend, but that's the average. In Ecuador, it's $31. In Chad, it's $1.23. And so fasting gives us an awareness of the poor. Fasting leads to action. Isaiah 58, read through that this afternoon. The kind of fasting I've chosen is to break the chains of injustice. To fast from judging others 
in order to feast on Christ living in them, to fast from harsh words in order to feast on words that build up, to fast from discontent in order to feast on gratitude, to fast from anger in order to feast on patience, and to fast from worry in order to feast on God's care, to fast from self-concern in order to feast on compassion for others, to fast from bitterness in order to feast on forgiveness, to fast from discouragement, to feast on hope, to fast from idle gossip, to feast on silence with purpose, to fast from suspicion, to feast on truth. Dave, would you come and lead us into a time of communion where we get to feast 